0: Father, we're thankful for the joy of the Lord which fills our spirit. We sense as we read the paper and watch the news that there isn't much joy in this world as tragedy after tragedy seems to come upon the people of this world. And yet, Lord, we know that our confidence, our faith, our foundation is in you. And no matter how difficult the situation may be universally or in our own lives, we have God to be our strength, our shield, our tower, and we just trust in you for this day. We ask for your special blessing upon us, Lord, as we study the Word of God today, and we ask, Lord, that each of us will take from here the Word that you have for us. The unique thing about the Word of God is that you speak individually from the same passage to the hearts of each person, and Father, We don't understand how that can be, except that it is supernatural. And we accept that, and we give you praise. And so we trust your spirit to be upon us now. In Christ's name, amen. I would like, if you would, to turn to chapter 43 of Genesis. 43, Genesis 43. Now famine was severe in the land. So it came about when they had finished eating the grain which they had brought from Egypt, that their father said to them, Go back, buy us a little food. So Judah spoke to him, however, saying, The man solemnly warned us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you do not send him, we will not go down, for the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Then Israel said, Why did you treat me so badly by telling the man whether you still had another brother? But they said, The man questioned particularly about us and our relatives, saying, Is your father still alive? Have you another brother? So we answered his questions. Could we possibly know that he would say, Bring your brother down? And Judah said to his father Israel, Send the lad with me, and we will arise and go that we may live and not die, we as well as you and our little ones. I myself will be a surety for him. You may hold me responsible for him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame before you forever. For if we had not delayed, surely by now we could have returned twice. smart Alec, kid, huh? We began last week looking a little bit at this uh, passage of Scripture and talking about the importance of grain, because obviously uh, we're talking about people who were shepherds, and so they had flocks of animals. (coughs) Although you could be certain by this time their flocks had greatly diminished because whenever you have a drought so severe as to bring seven years of famine, you certainly have the desiccation of the landscape and uh, insufficient food for the animals, and thus the animals would be dying off probably in large numbers. And then a little bit later on as we read the next passage, we're going to read about a couple of uh, varieties of food that are sent as a gift down to Egypt, and so we might, we might wonder about this all. But the point I was trying to make, one of the points I was trying to make last week, is that grain has served as the uh, staff of life, if you will, for most of societies, for most of history. And without sufficient grain, uh, people tend to uh, become malnourished and even to die. And in many places of the world, as you know, grain is the only substance that's available for uh, sustaining life. It's interesting, is it not, now that uh, nutritionists and dieticians and so forth are telling us more and more that that, uh, we should move away from our diets of, uh, you know, a lot of protein, meat, and so forth, back to the carbohydrate, which is the way it's been from really the beginning. We talked about this at the beginning of uh, Genesis, which you may remember. The, the human dentition is that of a browser, a grinder. And obviously God made us primarily to be eaters of grains and nuts and fruits and things like that. And, and meat, of course, was not even in our diet to begin with. It was something God later allowed uh, to take place, but no, it was not the original intent uh, of God. And so you could understand how grain would continue to be uh, very, very essential here. Well, Judah now steps into the forefront, as you see in this passage as we read it this morning. In response to his father's demands, Judah becomes the spokesperson, the spokesman for his brothers. It's very interesting as you think about all this, do you hear anything about Zebulon or Naphtali or Asher or Dan? No, you don't hear anything about uh, these brothers. All you hear about are certain ones, and uh, Judah now becomes the center of the stage, if you will, of the situation. Reuben's presentation had been refused out of hand by Jacob. He wouldn't even listen to Reuben's plea, send him down with me, and if I don't come back with him, you can kill my sons. wasn't a, a very exciting thought to Jacob, and so he just rejected the whole thing out of hand. Now, Reuben was the eldest son. He was supposed to be the clan chief after Jacob died. Uh, The next son was Simeon, but the problem with Simeon was what? Why couldn't he be the spokesperson here? Yeah, he was in prison down in Egypt. A little hard to do. The next person in terms of age was Levi. We might say, well, why isn't Levi the man here? Well, I think there are a couple of reasons. I think Levi was still in the doghouse with Jacob, for what he had done decades ago in slaughtering the population of Shechem. He and Simeon had been responsible for that. And uh, later on, towards the end of the book of Genesis, we know Jacob didn't forget that. Because when he makes the prophecy and the blessing for his sons, he basically calls those two brothers bloody men. And on top of that, I believe Levi, most likely at least, was one of the co-ringleaders in the attempt to destroy Joseph back up at Dothan 20 years before. And so he has no uh, honor in front of his father or in front of his brothers. So Judah becomes the spokesman here. And I think there are three, uh, three reasons at least why this is so. First reason is that he is the next oldest brother, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah. That was the order of birth. And so he is the eldest uh, responsible person remaining. And so I believe that's one reason. But more importantly, uh, we come to a second reason, and that goes back to the time when at Dothan, it was Judah who said, let us not slay our brother, but let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, because he is our own flesh. So although Judah was only half, heartedly doing this here, that is, he didn't go the whole way by saying, no, we can't do this, let him out and let him go. Uh, He at least stepped in so that the boy would not be slain. And so that showed some kind of concern for Joseph, probably primarily for Jacob, as well as some thought about God here in this whole thing. And then beyond that, I think thirdly, as we have studied from chapter 37 on, we see the slow transformation of this man, Judah. This little bit of a leaning in the right direction as he intercedes on behalf of Joseph. And then in chapter 38, remember uh, the whole deal with Tamar and how at the end of that he begins to, be, to show some character, some strength. I think that he of all of the brothers was beginning to show a greater strength of character. And we're going to see that in this chapter as we proceed a little bit further, and then in the 44th chapter, we're going to see it most precisely where Judah begins to become truly a type of Christ in this situation. Hard to believe as you look back at his life, especially back in the 38th chapter when he's you know, impregnating his, his daughter-in-law. It just doesn't seem like... Uh, a godly thing to do, and certainly it wasn't. But, but God works through him and uh, creates here a man who would be the founder of the tribe through whom would come Messiah. Judah here reiterates to his father the fact that the man had solemnly warned them not to return to Egypt without Benjamin. Don't bother coming back if you don't bring Benjamin with you. Now, the words solemnly warned here are actually a single word in Hebrew, which means to bear witness or to admonish. And the strength of it is illustrated in a couple of verses that I've noted there. I thought I'd just read them to to show you the strength of the word that Judah is using. I mean, he wants his father to know that we're not kidding here. Uh, Exodus 19, 21, then the Lord spoke, Spoke to Moses, Go down and solemnly warn, is the same word here, it's just translated warn. Warn the people lest they break through to the Lord to gaze and many of them perish. He's saying, Don't let them do this or they're going to die. I mean, that's a pretty solemn warning, isn't it? You solemnly warn your child not to run out into the street because it could be death. God is solemnly warning them not to gaze up the mountain or touch the mountain because it would be death. And then later in in Jeremiah, we see the result of the failure to heed God's solemn warning in the 11th chapter of Jeremiah, verses 7 and 8. For I solemnly warned your fathers... In the day that I brought them up from the land of Egypt, even to this day, warning persistently, saying, Listen to my voice. Yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but walked each one in the stubbornness of his evil heart. Therefore I brought on them all the words of this covenant, which I commanded them to do, but they did not. God solemnly warned warned Israel and Judah, this is the way to walk, walk ye in it. They did not. And so what happened was the destruction of Israel, and now, of course, in the days of Jeremiah, the destruction of Judah. Two nations were destroyed because they failed to heed the solemn warning, God. And so when Judah stands before Jacob and he says, this man solemnly warned us, he's using the strongest word he could use that his father might know that there just is no way. I mean, we're up against a solid rock here, and there's no way around. After using the word, he laid it on on the line to his father. If Jacob will allow Benjamin to go, they will go to Egypt. If not, they will not. That's the way it is, Dad. You send Benjamin, we'll go. You don't send Benjamin, nobody's going to Egypt. We'll all sit here and starve to death. (laughs) That's quite a proclamation because that only does not just mean that Jacob will starve to death, but the whole clan will starve to death. Judah underscored his statement here by repeating. You'll notice he repeats here, the man has said you will not even see my face. In other words, they would not get an audience before Joseph to even plead their cause and to say, oh, please, please. Benjamin couldn't come because it would kill my father. He wouldn't even see them to hear that. See, Jacob's hope was that the man would have mercy and say, well, yeah, I really understand. Go ahead and buy some grain. Uh, No, we'll never even find out if he has mercy because we won't even see his face. Well, Jacob was a stubborn man, but Jacob was not uh, 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 an irrational man. And so Jacob here begins to crack Under the pressure of being cornered, he is responsible. He is the clan chief. The the salvation of the whole nation rests on his hands. And if he refuses to let Benjamin go, he's, he's condemning the whole clan. And he will not stand up under that pressure. And so what he does, you'll notice, he says, Why did you ever tell the man that you had another brother? You dummies! He's really upset here. But you'll notice he is moving from his adamant position. I mean, before it was like, there is no way under God's sun that I'll ever let Benjamin go down to Egypt. That's way his response when Reuben made his first uh, approach. But now, of course, it's months later and the food supply is running out. It's easy to, to, to make a real strong stand if all the goodies are before you. But when all the goodies are gone, and then what do you do? So he now makes his move. Surrendering to reality. Did you notice something interesting about this passage as we read it? I I didn't really emphasize it in my reading here. But you'll notice as you go down through, like in verse 6, it says, Then Israel said... Now, you read through the chapters before that. He's called Jacob consistently. But now it says, Then... Israel said. Why is he suddenly called Israel instead of Jacob? Well, the, the only seemingly logical explanation here is that in his surrender to reality, in his final decision, okay, I'm going to let Benjamin go, there is an element of faith. Remember what Jesus said? that if we had faith even as great as a grain of mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, Be removed, and it will be removed. And, of course, you've all heard the story of how you get this big old brush bush out of a little bitty seed that's almost microscopic. It doesn't look much like faith here. It looks like Jacob's just cornered, and he's got no other option. But because I think of the use of the name Israel here, God is saying... The prince is beginning to show through here. There is a measure of faith involved in his final agreement to let Benjamin go. It's very reluctant, but nevertheless, it's there. Judah went on to carefully explain why it was that they had to tell the man about Benjamin because he had expressly asked them What about your father? Is he alive? Do you have yet another brother? I mean, you're looking at ten men here. They're all brothers. Would you assume there'd be more brothers? Probably not. You think they've got too many to start with. (laughs) But, of course, Joseph knows there's another brother. And, and, you know, he assumes the question will be uh, innocuous enough that they wouldn't guess anything. And so he asks if there is yet another brother. And that's when it came out about, well, there were two other brothers. One is not, and the other is with his father. And uh, that precipitated the whole thing. They had responded honestly. He asked the specific question. We gave an honest answer. Judah then pleaded with his father to allow Benjamin to go, if for no other reason, for the sake of his grandchildren. Now, Judah doesn't make any rash offer trying to twist his father's arm like Reuben Reuben was, uh, take Benjamin with me and if I don't bring him back, you can kill my kids. Judah simply declares himself surety for Benjamin. The word for surety means to be legally responsible before the political affairs, uh, the political organization of the world at that time, and before God Himself, which is more the thrust here. I will be surety for Benjamin. He was pledging all that he was and all that he had to guarantee Benjamin's safety. Now you'll notice that he does allow for the possibility that he might not bring Benjamin back. He makes no foolish, rash statements. I will bring Benjamin back, come hell or high water. He allows for the possibility, you know, what will the man demand? He may require Benjamin to stay, but he was pledging that he would do everything that Jacob himself would do in the situation if he were there. I will do as much as you yourself would do to guarantee the safety of this young man. That's quite a statement for a brother who probably had no great love for Benjamin on his own. Because Benjamin had become the object of his father's love as Judah had been before. I mean Joseph had been before. And since Joseph was gone and thought dead, uh, Jacob had focused all of his love and attention on the younger son of Rachel. And Judah certainly had a certain amount of jealousy, as you would expect, as the other brothers had had towards Joseph and he also. And yet he is basically saying, I will treat Benjamin as you would treat Benjamin. It's quite a statement, really, of what he's willing to do. And that's what I'm saying. This man's character is changing. This man is becoming truly Christ-like in some ways, at least at this point. Now, we remember that Judah made a pledge once before. Do we not remember that? Chapter 38, when his eldest son died and the second son went in and he was supposed to raise up seed uh, through Tamar to his older brother, but he wouldn't do it, and God had therefore slain both of them. And all that was left was his youngest son, who was too young supposedly at that time, to marry Tamar. So he promised Tamar, as soon as he's old enough, he will be yours. And, of course, he did not come through on it, and as a result, uh, in her manipulation, she became pregnant by her father-in-law. So Judah had made a pledge, had failed to, to carry out his pledge, and had been made to look the fool. <laughs> he was not going to let that happen again. This pledge would stick. He said, if I do fail, I will bear the blame. The Hebrew word here literally means sin. I will bear the sin before you forever if I do not bring Benjamin back to you alive. We today could say, well, you know, before God I'll do this and I'll do that, and we just kind of flippantly say things like this. This is a very serious statement when made by Judah. Because in those days, at that time, they considered this to, to make such a pledge before God as absolutely ironclad. And so to make it without being serious would be very, very foolish. And so Judah is basically pledging his his life, his existence, his future, his everything to guarantee Benjamin. And so we would see here a certain measure of spiritual maturity is beginning to develop in this man Judah. It's kind of slow, isn't it? But I suppose as we look at our own lives, we have to admit sometimes our spiritual growth is a little slow too. Maybe too slow for us and and possibly slower than God would like. But there is a Christ-likeness beginning to show up here. And like Christ, he was to be surety for Benjamin as Christ has become surety before God the Father for us all. And he has given to us the Holy Spirit as a pledge. We're blessed. And then, finally, Judah makes this rather smart-alecky statement. If we hadn't been jabbering about this so long, we could have been down to Egypt and back two times. Kind of to jar his father loose here to to make a decision. Plus the fact, just think of the little subtlety here. We could have been to Egypt twice, meaning gone and returned. And the implication was safely with Benjamin. This, of course, little subtle hint there to help Jacob to be convinced. All right, verse 11, Genesis 43, 11. Then their father Israel said to them, if it must be so, then do this. Take some of the best products of the land in your bags, Carry down to the man, as a present, a little balm, (laughs) B-A-L-M, a little honey, aromatic gum and myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds, and take double the money in your hand, and take back in your hand the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was a mistake. Take your brother also. Arise and return to the man, and may God Almighty grant you compassion in the sight of the man, that he may release to you your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So the men took this present, and they took double the money in their hand and Benjamin. Then they arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. Judah's case before his father is irrefutable. What could Jacob say? The logic is there, the obvious consequences. This is what we must do. We have no other course of action. God doesn't always bring us to such a place, does he? He doesn't always bring us to a place where it's so obvious that there is no other course of action. Sometimes he does, but sometimes he does not. And sometimes we may look out there and we may say we have this one and this one and this one. We have three possible courses of action. Which one shall we take, O Lord? And that's, of course, where walking daily in faith with God in prayer and study of his word is absolutely crucial if we're to know the way that he has set before us. It's interesting here that Israel, as he gives in, he acknowledges the inevitable with the words, if it must be so. Not exactly enthusiastic, is he? (laughs) If it must be so. If he didn't allow Benjamin to go, what would be the option? Benjamin might die anyway of starvation there in Canaan along with everybody else. And so he lets Benjamin go. Now notice what happens. Once Jacob finally arrives at the decision what to do, the correct course of action, he asserts his rightful leadership. He doesn't say, oh, if it must be so, and go back in his tent and sulk and wring his hands and moan and groan. He says, if it must be so, then let's do this. He ordered a proper present put together. Now you could think, well, he's trying to butter up the man as much as possible. Well, maybe so. But it's still the right thing to do. He was going to approach the man as one Bedouin clan chief would have approached another in that society in that day. So he's going to send a gift. Now, you've probably noticed as we've gone through the pages of Genesis that the gifts given in those days were often, <laughs> to us, they seemed overwhelming. You know, like the gifts that Jacob gave to Esau. You know, flock after flock after flock of animals. And, of course, we know there were <laughs> certain underlying motivations for all of that. But it seems that the gift giving was not some little trinket. You know, the gifts taken over to paid an Arab. By, uh, by Abraham's servant. Remember the gold bracelet and nose ring and, and so forth that were to be given to the gal that was to be chosen for Isaac's wife? These weren't trinkets. As we estimated, they were probably worth about 2,000 bucks. That's no trinket to just be given away to some strange lady you see someplace. Uh, and, and so we, we see this, this seemingly overwhelming gift here. It's not a gift of of just little plastic toys. We're talking about extremely expensive items from that day. For example, first of all, we read that uh, one gift was balm, or literally in Hebrew, balsam, which was the aromatic resin of certain plants that were located in Gilead at that time, which today those who study this aren't sure exactly which plants they were. And, and you can imagine, so uh, there weren't any plant taxonomists in those days who classified everything. So you could kind of look up, oh, a bomb was made out of you know the hutsuwatsu hutsu. It was, it's, it's. They, they think they know what plants might have been used, but they're not sure because the b- word bomb or balsam is kind of generic here. But whatever it was, if you remember back in chapter thirty-seven. The Ishmaelite caravan that was coming from Gilead and going down to Egypt was carrying balm. That was one of the items being carried on down to Egypt. And we know that in Egypt they, what, embalmed people, (laughs) which basically meant that they took all the insides and all the liquid stuff out and and soaked the body in natron. But they also, of course, put these spices and good-smelling things Uh, on the bodies too to help preserve them. Secondly, we're told that uh, they were to take honey. Now the Hebrew word is the word debosh, which literally means the syrup of grapes and figs and dates and that type of thing. Now it may imply honey made from bees. But the primary source of sweetness in those days, the primary sweetener was not honey. Because honey was not found in in large enough quantities to be the primary sweetener. But it was the boiled down residue of grapes and figs and dates. And so they had this fructose syrup stuff that was the primary sweetener that was used in trade in that day. Thirdly was aromatic gum which is, uh, again, we talked about this before, thought to be the resin of what was known as the tragacanth shrub and uh, is still used, apparently, in that part of the world as an aroma, as kind of an incense to sweeten up the house a little bit. And then, of course, fourthly, myrrh. We've heard a lot about myrrh because we know myrrh was one of the wonderful gifts given to Christ at the time of his birth or near the time of his birth and we know that it was considered to be of extremely high value in, in the ancient world the rosin, the resin of the ladanum shrub which was uh, this bush is known today it was a pink it's a pink flowered bush that's called the rock rose and from its uh, rosin this ointment or perfume is made it's the chanel number no. 5 of the ancient world <laughs> if you will highly highly treasured uh, perfume Pistachio nuts, well, we're all familiar with those, are we not? Most of us probably are not uh, aware of the fact that pistachio nut is native to the Near East. Uh, That's where the plant, or the tree, actually, it grows 20, 30 feet high. That's where it grew, began to grow. It's been imported here to the States and other parts of the world, Europe, from the Near East. And then almonds, the same is true there. The almond is native to the Near East. It was highly prolific. It was very abundant in Canaan in the ancient world. And uh, the almond, uh, it's interesting that the word which we call almond is actually the Hebrew word which means to hasten. This is the to hasten tree. <laughs> and, and the reason it's called that was it was the very first tree after winter was over to flower. So it's the first one to do so. So it's the hastening of spring tree, I guess you could say. And so they referred to it uh, as that. And again, the almond and the pistachio nut were considered to be delicacies, even though the trees were fairly abundant. They were considered to be delicacies, particularly in Egypt, where the trees were not abundant. Can you imagine what a gift of almonds and pistachios would mean in a time of famine? It would be an extra important uh, delicacy. I think one of the important things to note about, as, as we think about this, throughout history, when famines have struck here and struck there, wherever they have, the people to die in largest numbers have been the people on the lowest end of the economic scale. The wealthy often do just fine even in famines because they have the ability to acquire food from far distant places, high-priced food that the poor couldn't even afford in good times, such as these delicacies. And so often, you know, you're, you're reminded of uh, Maria Antoinette, who supposedly said, let them eat cake, you know, when the people were riding in the streets for bread. And she's talking about the fact that there in the palace, they've got cake, not, not only bread, but cake even. And uh, this just kind of illustrates the arrogant attitude of the wealthy towards the the, the impoverished masses who take the brunt of disasters like this and die off in large numbers. I would guess, I haven't looked into this, but I would guess if you could go over to Rwanda today uh, and, and the area, you won't find very many rich people in those camps. It's the poor that are dying in these camps the rich people are still probably doing reasonably okay. They're probably still in their fancy houses someplace there or fled the country early on with their money and have done right well. Jacob instructed his sons to take twice the price of the grain so that the man would know that they were not trying to cheat him. Now, it's indicative in this passage that Jacob hoped that the money being returned in the sacks after the first trip to Egypt was a mistake. But whether a mistake or a test, Jacob and the brothers wanted the man to know that they were honest men. And so they brought the money originally that they had taken and had been returned with them, and they brought new money to pay for the new grain. Is it not interesting how important it was to them to appear to Joseph as honest men after they had been totally dishonest before their father Jacob for 20 years, living in in a a dishonest lifestyle? Not a lifestyle, but in a dishonest situation relative to their brother Joseph. And now they're so concerned that Joseph consider them to be honest men. The 13th and 14th verses here that we read give us, I think, uh, an important insight into the submission of Joseph. Take your brother, arise and return to the man. And may God Almighty grant you compassion in the sight of the man. And if I am bereaved, I am bereaved. His submission is not very enthusiastic. He doesn't say, take Benjamin because I know God's going to be with you and I know you're going to have a great journey and I know you're going to bring Benjamin and Simeon back and we're going to have a great party. No. He says, take Benjamin, go, and if you don't come back, you don't come back. And I just suffer the loss of you all. But a very, very important thing is happening here. He is relinquishing into the hands of God the one whom he believed to be the only surviving son of his beloved Rachel. You know, we read this story and and I think we can be kind of cold towards it all but to try to put yourself in the place of this man Jacob. And we read about his struggle and his work and, and how hard he labored to, to get the hand of his beloved Rachel. And then, of course, on the night of his marriage to be tricked and be given her sister and, and then told, well, you can have Rachel too, but you've got to work another seven years. And the seven years were, but, but no time at all and as, as he worked for his beloved. And, and to understand how much He deeply loved Rachel, although he had three other wives and he had all these other kids. And this was the only surviving uh, person having anything to do with Rachel. Rachel was dead, and as far as he knew, Joseph was dead, and all that was left was Benjamin. I mean, it was like relinquishing the very inner sanctum of his heart. Giving over to these brothers everything that he had ever hoped for in this life so it was it was a tremendous relinquishment and i don't think we can put any blame on jacob if it was if it can only be viewed as a relinquishing rather than an enthusiastic giving the important part is the giving whether it be reticent or not to begin with out of this i think we can truly see that it is It is so critical that if we call ourselves the child of God that we be willing to surrender to God whatever we consider to be the most dear in this life. We cannot hold anything back from God. Be it a thing, be it a profession, be it a person, whatever it is, God doesn't just want the peripheral things in our lives. He wants the central thing in our life because he wants to be the central one in our lives. It's so critical that we be willing to do this. Now, as we've seen in Jacob's case, it wasn't very enthusiastic, and it may not be for us at first either. But remember, before he'd been adamant, absolutely no, nothing will move me from this position. But God has moved him. Maybe through circumstances, but God has moved him. And now he's willing to relinquish because God has something better. Jacob doesn't know that yet. But I think for us, the application is that we must be willing to do so also. Even if it's, if it's a little bit of a weak relinquishing at first, it's that first step. Uh, of opening up everything that we have and everything that we are to God, because God will not be God unless He possesses us totally. I mean, what does the word God mean anyway? Well, with a little g, it can mean a lot of things. But with a capital G, it means the ruler of the universe, the possessor of, of everything, the one who loves us beyond our ability to even comprehend, and who is worthy of our love in return, and our willingness to give Him everything. Because we need to do so for at least two reasons. First of all, to prove the reality of our commitment to Him. If there are things we're holding on to, and we are saying, God, you can't have this, then are we committed to Him? What's our definition of commitment? To love anything more than God is to have an idol. I-D-O-L, in our lives. And this is very, very clear from Scripture. And it's also very clear from the first commandment that you shall have no other gods, no idols, no anything before me. This is a command of God, the very first command of God to his people. And that command has not been abrogated. It still stands today as it has always stood from from the Garden of Eden to the end of time. You shall have no other gods before me. You know, if you go to India and you live amongst the Hindus and you say you have this god, your neighbor says, fine, I have that god and this god tolerates that god and you can have millions of gods like they do and they all get along fine together because they're just a fellowship of demons anyway. But in the Bible, it is not so. God will not share His honor or His worship with anyone, anything, anywhere, anytime. And it isn't because God's a big greedy person up there just wanting everybody's love. It's because He is the only one in the universe worthy of our love and our worship. Nothing else is worthy because everything else is a creature, a created thing. He is the only creator. And and for us to give our love and our worship to anything else, it's not that it denies something that he desperately needs. It's because it kills us to do so. It withers us away because we're following the prince of this world. Let, Let me read a familiar passage to you from Matthew 22, verse 36. Pharisees, of course, are trying to trip up Jesus. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, on these two commandments depend the whole law and prophets. In other words, everything hangs on these two commandments. And the first is that we should love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind. And when he says all our heart, soul, and mind, he doesn't mean our divided mind, our divided heart, our divided soul. It's a singleness of purpose. And as I was thinking about this, I was reminded of Joshua after they had conquered the the nation of Israel. And you go to the 24th chapter of Joshua, and Joshua stands before the people. He says, now we have conquered the land. God has brought us here. Choose you this day whom you will serve whether the gods of our fathers before we ever came out of Mesopotamia or the gods of the Amorites or Yahweh, choose. As for me and my house, we will serve Yahweh. But they had to choose. They couldn't just stand on the fence and say, well, I don't know, you know, Baal may be okay, God may be okay, we'll just kind of stay in the middle. We'll hedge our bets, you know. No, it's impossible. We must either go for God or not. Those are the only two choices. As we're listening to uh, Erwin Lutzer this morning, he was saying there are only two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. There is no in-between kingdom. And we are either in the kingdom of God or in the kingdom of darkness. That's it. (laughs) There's no nirvana in between or, or purgatory or some other place. There's only these two places. And you remember the fiery Elijah as he stood on the top of Mount Carmel before all the people. And the fire came down from heaven and consumed the sacrifice. And he said, What do you people do and stand on the fence? Why halt ye between two opinions? If Baal be Lord, follow him. But if God be Lord, follow him. You can't stand in the middle. And then, of course, Jesus told his listeners, you cannot serve God and mammon. You must serve one or the other. And so by our willingness to relinquish whatever is dear in our lives, we are proving to ourselves and to others the reality of our commitment to God as opposed to the kingdom of darkness or Baal or whatever we might use. And then secondly... And we'll end with this. A second purpose is to prove our faith in the loving kindness and power of God. Do we believe that God is love? That is an attribute of God. God is love, which means He is comprised of love, He manifests love, and He cannot manifest non-love. This is an attribute of God. If we don't trust God with what we hold most dear, then we don't, bottom line, we don't really trust God, period. If we say, oh, I trust God in this matter, and it's, it's no big deal, you know, it's whether I go bowling tonight or not. But when it comes to those things most dear, that's where it really shows up. Do we really trust God? That was the point of Abraham going to the top of Mount Moriah with Isaac. I mean, God knew that Abraham loved him. God knew what was going to happen all along. But Abraham had to show to himself that God was greater than that which he held most dear in his life, his son Isaac. And all of us have got to arrive at that same place where we'll be willing to give the Isaac of our life to God. God wants us to commit all, all that we are and all that we have, to Him because He's the only one who can take care of us, and He's the only one that can help us hang on to what we have if He wants us to have it. So many people are spending so much time trying to figure out, how am I going to have enough to retire on? And so they do this and they do that and they do the other thing and they keep track of all their stocks and bonds and their annuities and who am I going to have enough to retire on? And we can work like that until we are you know, work ourselves into the grounds and you go blow it all in one major operation or something, you know. Or the stock market could go to the seller. It can happen overnight. It's dumb. Not that we shouldn't you know, store up for the future, that, that God would like us to do that. But that's not where our hope is. That's, our anxieties are built on that. Our trust has got to be in him. Not to the point where we're foolish. Well, God's going to take care of me, so I throw it all away and spend it on everything now. That's dumb. God wants us to be wise and faithful. He wants us all to come to that place where Paul came. As we read in 2 Timothy chapter 1, for I know whom I have believed, and am convinced that he is able to guard what I've entrusted to him until that day when I stand face to face with him. Well, next week we'll look at Jacob's pronouncement of blessing upon his sons and in whose name he pronounces this blessing. And then look at the trip.